This is Our Legacy, changing what it means to be blind in New South Wales and the ACT. And as those who are involved in causing and promoting change know, it's not easy, and it often comes at a cost to the change agents. Hello, I'm Angela Caterns, and in this podcast series, you'll hear the voices and stories of people who are blind or vision impaired, and how they've changed what it means to be blind in New South Wales and the ACT. You'll hear about their lives, about the importance of mentoring and peer support, about the places that meant so much to them, and about some of the campaigns for change on which they worked. You'll hear memories from the 1950s to the early 2000s, from some of the men and women who simply wanted to make things better. Episode two, peer support, relationships, parenting, and recreation. Because the winds are changing, recently going to a Blind Citizens Australia National Convention and we have them biannually now whereas we used to have them annually and I just remember walking into the convention room one morning and something just clicked in my brain. It's almost like something primal had clicked in my brain that sort of said this is what it's all about. You know I'm here with people that have very common experiences and it's peer support's not something you can kind of really quantify but it's about having that primal basic understanding that you've got something in common I gained so much knowledge when I was young from other blind people that um, I'm always keen to meet with... uh, I met just the other day with a young uh, law student from China who's um, losing her sight and expects not to be able to see it all in six months or so, and she's working out strategies to to deal with that, and I talked to her about Braille and about uh, speech output and what I'd done as a lawyer and uh, some of the things that she can do, and um, she went away sort of very encouraged by that conversation and we'll continue that relationship and um, I'll share my um, experiences with her and introduce her to other people who are effectively operating in those professions. So that networking and peer support is really important part of, of, of Blind Citizens Australia. Essential, critical just to be able to understand and be able to ask things you're not sure about and to not feel alone and feel, feel accepted as a person and being a person that happens to have a disability is okay. That was a big part of it. I've always found people who happen to be blind around me that that are helpful, and I suppose you brought you um, uh, build up a support network in that way. But I've always been interested to meet blind people if I hear about them, especially if they're doing the things that I do. And I think if I'm away from blind people for any length of time, I do miss them. (laughs) 
Beginning in 1986, annual music camps were held for students who were blind or vision impaired from around Australia. Ian Cooper was the coordinator for many years and the venue was Frencham School near Mittagong, a pretty cold place in July for the week when the camps took place. Around 50 or 60 students attended, many of them returning year after year. A lot of blind people uh, actually made their money as um, as musicians, and there were some very good musicians. Uh, and in fact, uh, the music camps sort of came out to to reinforce those skills because it was recognised that for many people it's become their profession, their career. It's a music camp that runs for students who are blind or vision impaired, and it's to do with being able to encourage the depth of music education and also learn to improve or learn braille music. And uh, many well-known blind people have been uh, musicians as a result of the ongoing music camps. It meant that people that were musically minded or enjoyed music could, could really connect and often they'd be there and come from all over the country. So it meant, I lo meant a lot of people and it was one of the few places where there's no, for want of a better word, social barriers so that everyone's blind or vision impaired we're all there because we're wanting to enjoy music, engage in music, learn braille music. So it was an extremely beneficial um, social peer support experience as well. And I went there for several years and I met many friends, many that I still have today. This is Jennifer Parry, Ni Shang, playing the flute at music camp. in schools uh, where they might be the only blind child and I think they seem to find a great deal of mutual support at the music camp and at perhaps at other camps too for blind children. I think they have a chance to express themselves in a way that perhaps they don't have in an ordinary school and they're not the one who's different, the blind girl in, in a school. Also where they have to queue up for their meals or be responsible in some way for, for themselves. Uh, they're, they're allowed to take their time. Perhaps in an ordinary school they'd be hurried along or people might do things for them just because that would be a quicker way. Also I think that they probably have more chance to get to know boys. Um, they're more on equal terms in a way perhaps and um, in an ordinary school maybe they might be the one that's left out uh, in a dance or something like that whereas they'd have more opportunities at music camp. It used to be in Victoria the Blind Workers Union years and years ago and there was the Blind Housewives Union too in down in Victoria. The mothers of young children, blind mothers of young children, just the support group to, um, to help each other I assume. So they probably met or probably talked on the phone that I, and I don't know if they did any lobbying for improvements or whether they just were there to support each other. 
One time, one of the members of the women's group, this is in early years, um, produced a little um, book on cassettes mainly, I think it was in Braille too, called Home Nursing for Vision, Vision Impaired Women. I can't remember its exact color. It had home nursing. But she was making the point that a lot of us helped other people. Like, So she had a, a woman friend that she cared for. She was very ill health. She cared for uh, single-handedly for quite a while. And um, I was made a contribution because I was looking after my... My, oh, you know, looking after, looking after other people's children as well as my own child. We were just trying to make the point that we were not just takers in society, that we were we were givers of, of help and support to other you know, family and friends. I, I guess one of the the things that I have found through my life is that it's been difficult to uh, to establish relationships. I'm a single person, and I. I've got uh, nieces and nephews and who I see occasionally because they live far away. I've got a million nieces and nephews and try to look after them as much as I can. I didn't have any children, no, and I didn't marry. No, I'm a single. I've always been a bit uh, self-conscious, I suppose, for want of a better way to put it, um, about whether or not it would la- a relationship would last for me because I've seen so many other people who's who's who've lost sight during their marriage and whose partner walked out in, on them. Um, also because I've got some health problems related to the rubella, I've always been a bit self-conscious about intimacy in that regard. Um, and the the fact that I sleep so poorly and have so little energy which is directly a result of my blindness again um, has kind of hampered me in actually having the energy to go out and meet people because I don't have any light perception um, and what uh, the, the being able to see light and dark is um, part of what resets your body clock every day um, it's called that's circadian. Sometimes it's referred to as non-24 hour sleep disorder, but it's essentially a circadian rhythm disorder where your body clock isn't just isn't regulating itself because you can't see light and dark. <clears throat> so I find that I can get to sleep. I might be really, really tired and go to bed at 10 o'clock, but I'll be awake by one or two. You can't get away from blindness. You can't put it away in the cupboard for an hour or so. Um, You can at home, but if you're going out, it's always there. I've always found that uh, it has affected my relationship with doctors. I think partly they, they think we don't want to know, and I think partly they think we're not going to understand. So they don't naturally tell us. I even had one doctor talk to me through the staff who were with him. He didn't speak to me at all. It's almost as though the rest of the world infantilises people with disabilities. It's inconceivable that a person with a disability can be a parent because a parent is a really grown-up and responsible status or something. What made me start thinking about this was when my first child was um, quite young and I was in full-time work and I was trying to find childcare. And I knew that 
um, the, the Commonwealth Government's childcare policy actually gave priority of access to children and parents with disabilities. But I swear, I thought I was the only person in Australia who did know about the and parents part, because try as I might to um, to get this message across in my search for childcare, nobody, nobody acknowledged that parents with disability were an, uh, a priority access category. It was as though it just kept disappearing out of the equation. Everybody could talk about children with disabilities, but no one could talk about parents. My partner is not vision impaired or blind. When we met, I wasn't really interested in a relationship. It was through selling a security door to me when I moved into a one-bedroom flat. Because someone said, I ring this company, they're really good with doors and blinds and grills and etc., awnings and stuff. And so I rang them up and the representative came out and said, just clicked, a half an hour visit was a three-hour conversation. Um, and I thought, this is really nice. He dropped the quote and left, and I thought, this is great. It was nice to actually converse with somebody without them being awkward or feeling shy around me, because that can often happen when people don't have eye contact. And I thought, no more of it. And then later that year, unfortunately, the place got broken into, ransacked, and I thought, how am I going to get these grills and doors repaired? Christmas, New Year period, the worst time ever. And I rang the company, and... The person that had seen me originally happened to be there and he, when um, the, re the referral was taken, he said, I'll go, I'm on holidays, but I'll go. And the rest is history. Went first date was at Watson's Bay Doyle's and that was 24 years ago. Raising a child as a person who was blind or vision impaired was, was great. I mean, it was one of the most exciting things that I've ever done in my life, and I and I to this day, um, you know, love the interaction. It had its challenges, uh, and certainly um, uh, there were some very useful uh, books around, uh, um, written by other parents who are blind or vision impaired. The one I remember was called Kids Are Fun for Everyone, and that was written by a number of parents, mainly women, I think, in Blind Citizens Australia, um, talking about the lessons that they'd learned uh, raising uh, kids as, as blind parents. And I had to um, work with Rachel to, to do things in a way that... Um, that worked for her and for and for me in terms of me keeping her safe. And what we did really was we developed a um, relationship of trust where uh, I could rely on her, you know, not to go away um, far from me uh, uh, without telling me where she was going or without me knowing where she was going. And most of the time we were travelling, she'd either be um, in a backpack or in a little papoose on my chest or in the pram. Um, and... Um, and if she was out of the pram, you know, playing at the park um, as a toddler, she it was a great game to run away from Dad. But she used to laugh so much that I could always find her. So <laughs> um, uh, laugh at the fact that I couldn't catch her, um, you know. So we, we just did things like that to to make sure that um, I could um, participate in the parenting as uh, as as much as possible. Um, I wouldn't say on an equal basis, but um, because Maureen probably did more of the parenting than I did, but um, but I certainly had a significant role. Ever since I had my first child, who's now 17, um, I've known that I had a vision impairment, although at, at that time um, it really didn't affect me very much. I've 
since I've had that knowledge, I have never chosen to drive a car because I considered that to be an act of considerable irresponsibility. And that in itself has been um, enormously problematic in terms of combining a fairly demanding full-time job and motherhood. Uh, I think most women in that situation are very dependent on mobility and fairly rapid mobility in order to combine all the demands of their life because it's a pretty complex management job. And I've right from the start found it incredibly difficult. One of the really big things I think for a lot of people is is that most of the time with a sighted partner comes a car. Um, not being able to drive, I think for most blind people, is probably one of the most frustrating things of the lot. That has many other implications. It's not just taking people around. It's also my ability to turn up at, you know, at a school play or sports event or whatever um, where if I could drive, it might be relatively easy for me to you know, splice that into the day, although I don't think it's ever easy. Um, but you know, when you have to move around in much slower and less reliable ways, then um, it, it's just really difficult to to splice those things into your day. And I think um, that your children can be very conscious of of that, of what you can't do. I was quite possessive of the child and wanted to do everything for her I could. So I was. Um, I was breastfeeding. I had her on a little um, harness to take her out in the, in the street so she couldn't just run away onto the road. Uh, um, my mother was around for part of the time staying with me, so she helped teach her colours and things like that. I ended up looking after other people's children because a lot of people were working, and, so I'd have, and because my daughter was an only child, I needed to have other children around for her to play with, so cousins and other people... Um, they were quite, a lot of people were quite happy to trust me with children, so that was good. Both my children uh, were actually bottle-fed and that presents its own problems for making up bottles for, uh, for, uh, for, for, for a baby. Um, I was very fortunate in that uh, uh, Bob had some useful vision and he mostly took on that job. Then there were all the, the difficulties of uh, uh, teaching a young blind child the, the skills that they need to, you know, to um, get along with daily life, um, about, you know, how to uh, eat their food and, uh, and all that sort of thing. You understood what the problems were. For instance, um, I wasn't over-phased by the fact that... Uh, uh, my elder child was taking a bit longer to to start to to uh, crawl and walk, etc. Because uh, that's something that a, a blind child often does take a bit longer. Uh, and it, whilst I was concerned and, and you know wanted to make sure that it happened, it it didn't upset me to the extent that it might have upset a sighted person. 
blind people, I always think, are very contemplative. We spend a lot of time on our own. We can't always uh, distract our minds like other people spend their, their lives trying to distract themselves from their inner life by reading and flicking through magazines and looking around themselves constantly. I noticed as a teenager that um, my friends and I were much more uh, deeply thinking than, than our classmates and you do spend a lot of time thinking about well, what is the meaning of life, what, what am I here for? I decided to take leave without pay from my job. I was a legal assistant with the Legal Aid Commission and go for one or two months to India. I, I suppose the reason I decided to stay in the ashram was I wanted to learn the secrets of, of inner contentment and deriving happiness from within rather than basing your happiness on external objects or relationships which can be taken away from you at any moment. You see plenty of people who have all their faculties who are, are sighted um, and who are miserable and so you realise eventually that it's not whether you can see or not or whether you're rich or not that, that makes the difference. It transformed me. It's only the beginning. I, I know I've got a lot more work to do to, um, to attain the state of the Buddha, so to speak, but it really gave me a very firm foundation. I, I've certainly found um, now that I have a lot more control over my mind, a lot more detachment. I'm much more um, centred in the present. I don't worry about the past and I don't worry about the future. I realise that being blind is, is absolutely no barrier what's, whatsoever, but you don't need to be able to see to look into the inner world. In fact, you've probably got some advantage. Uh, I was hitting the ball a lot more and my handicap was blowing out. And it wasn't until I actually read that there were blind golfers in the UK in one of the newspapers that I thought, well, I wonder if that happens in Australia. And uh, at the time I, I made some inquiries, but nobody seemed to... Uh, there was nothing organised in, in, for blind and vision impaired people to play golf. It was just if you wanted to do it, well, make your own arrangements. Then I kept playing uh, with friends of mine just to keep... Uh, you know, out in the fresh air and, uh, you know, walk under the trees. And uh, really what happened was that uh, in about 88, uh, I heard that Western Australia were running an Australian Open for blind, vision impaired people. And uh, Western Australia had actually been playing golf for some years prior mm. to that. This Australian Open came about by sponsorship from a company in Western Australia, a Japanese company. And the sponsorship was for 10 years, so there's been a, an Australian Blind Open Championship every year since 1989. And out of that has also come, uh, in about 90 or 91, the New South Wales Blind Golf Golfers Association was uh, formed, and that's now got quite large, and there's probably um, 35 to 40 players playing regularly in New South Wales. The Victorians also started a blind golfers group and that's been going for quite a few years now and they've had about three or four Victorian Opens. I'd accumulated a lot of holidays and my boss said, you must go and take some holidays. And I wanted to go to Lamington National Park in Queensland. I'd heard a lot about it, but I couldn't find anyone who was free at the time to go with me. So I just wrote and said, I'm a blind person, I have done a bit of bushwalking, is it all right if I come for a holiday? And thinking they'd write back and say, you know, you can't come by yourself. But they wrote back and said, yes, come. So I went and uh, the system then was every morning at breakfast they'd go around and say, do you want to go on this, that or the other walk? And people would put their names down and so then you'd have, say, five or six people doing this walk and 
five or six doing another one and, and I would just join whatever group that I had said I wanted to walk with and, and they were probably a bit surprised but they didn't worry, they took me and uh, I had a wonderful holiday and I, in fact I met my husband there though he was never in my walking group I met him around the fire at nights where we'd congregate and we'd, I'd play cards or talk to people and it was a, an excellent holiday, a really good holiday. And one of the advantages I found that not going with anyone, very often when you're a blind person, people say, you know, would she like this or would she like that? And they couldn't do that because there wasn't anybody to ask. So they'd always had to come and ask me and it was a great way to meet a lot of the people. You had that group of people there who wanted to find a game they could play and they modified table tennis and we got swish and now it's an international game that they call a showdown all over the world and they actually have world championships in it. Well, it started in New South Wales. It was actually invented by Ray and Bill McGregor. They devised this game. Um, it was a, a really sort of... Um, um, I suppose inspired by table tennis, really. You're not hitting a ball over the net, but rather under a, uh, a screen which is a few feet high, which is above the, the table itself. Right, and there's about, what, six inches room between the table and the bottom of the board? Yes, there is. Right, um, and the, the, the implement you use is a paddle rather than a... Than a table tennis, rounded table tennis yes, bat. Yes, it's it's a, it's a rectangular type paddle. Right. Yes. And the ball? The ball is just a little kitten and puppy ball with the bell in it, right. and they work they work really well. This plastic one. And it, it you had a table with um, what you call a net in the in the middle, and you propelled the ball under the net instead of over it and uh, used bats, etc., to a similar scoring system to table tennis. And uh, it was, uh, uh, you know, and uh, uh, Bill McGregor built a, table, a special table for the purpose and we, we played it with, um, you know, a great deal of gusto, I think. It was, it was taken up by other people in other states and uh, I think it's gone to various other countries but uh, that's where it really started and it, it was just a pity that we did not put a lot more effort into consolidating it here. I think one, one of the things that, that seems to have happened is, is you know, um, the blind community has become more sort of diversified uh, is, is that we've we found it harder to keep in touch with our own, with our own history. My auntie Olive uh, married... Uh, Jim Campbell. Jim Campbell was one of the, the founders of the Association of Blind Citizens in the early years of the 20th century. And in 1939, he wrote a book which uh, chronicled the history of the association uh, to, that, to that point. And reading that book, you really get a sense of how um, some things change, but some things, you know, some things stay the same. The need for strong kind of consumer advocacy has, has stayed the same. Um, the need for peer support has, you know, has stayed the same. The need to engage with the with the general community to increase awareness of the the barriers that exist for people who are blind has stayed, you know, has stayed the same. Sometimes I think we, you know, each each new generation sort of thinks that they are the first generation to have 
and encountered uh, sort of issues. And so it's very insightful when you read a book that was written uh, in 1939 to see just how how many synergies there are. Until the the middle of of 2014, uh, it was virtually impossible to uh, to access this book because there are only a, a couple of um, a few braille copies um, dated back to 1939. So I, I thought it was important to preserve um, the contents of this book. So I, I transcribed it from hard copy braille into a into a digital format, uh, so that it now is is, is going to be available um, to anyone who wants to, to wants to read it. And I hope people do want to read it and will find it as as insightful uh, as as I have, just to see how much. How much we can learn today, even though even though we express things in different you know in different language, uh, and even though the issues have become perhaps more more complex, the, the the core of advocacy I think has stayed has stayed the same. This podcast featured the voices and stories of Susan Thompson, Graham Innes, Jennifer Parry, Joan Nish, Lynn McGregor, Sandy Dark. Roz Sackley, Sondra Wibberley, Lynn Davis, Murray Sheng, Lee Smith, Lynn Hogg, Joan Lederman, David Blythe, Sarah Dubray, June Ashmore, Trish James and Bruce Maguire. It was produced by Angela Caterns and edited by Damon Sutton for Blind Citizens Australia. Theme song by Emma Benison. Being blind can create challenges because of the way other people react to it. People who are blind do not need or welcome pity. They may appreciate help at certain times and under certain circumstances, but their lives are as varied as any other people's. They are the same, only different. Because the winds are changeable.